Again, we're going to be reading from Genesis 14, 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer Armar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet with him at the valley of Shevar, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was a priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, or Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young man have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Enar, Eshkal, and Mamre take their share. Thanks, Jennifer. Just a heads up, when we tried this earlier, the, the room shook and several people lost their hearing. Let's try it again. We're good? All right. Good morning, church. So we're continuing our series in Genesis. And last week, Pastor Ross showed what happens when greedy men have power. Very specifically, what we see is that five kings go against four kings. These greedy men want to take what's not theirs, and they create this giant raiding party, win this victory, and in the midst of this giant raid, they sweep up Lot and his family, which is Abram's nephew. And remember, Lot willingly chose to live outside of God's promised land area because he wanted more for himself. And so we kind of see the picture of his greed. And and often in the Old Testament, instead of straight up saying, this is wrong, what the narrator will often do is show an action and then show the consequence that's deeply troublesome and destructive. And that's the way the narrator is saying, yeah, yeah, that, that's not good. So we're going to see that over and over again throughout Genesis is that we're going to learn a lot about God's heart and what he cares about and what is okay in his mind by seeing the devastating consequences when people go out of his way. And what we see with these greedy kings is what we see over and again in throughout history, in the Bible and in our lives, is that when God is not your treasure and you are not trusting him to be your provider, you will either be deeply anxious or you are going to snatch and grab that which is not rightfully yours. And we see that going on with these kings. Now the question turns into a test with Abram. Because Abram rescues miraculously with 318 men. Lot and all of the stuff. They win this giant epic battle that doesn't make any sense. And now Abram is full of stuff. He's got a lot of stuff, and he's got a lot of people, and a lot of possessions, and a lot of things. And so remember, we are seeing Abram going through this journey of faith. And his first test, he fails miserably. He doesn't trust in God. He tries to be clever himself. He tries to save his own butt and cowardly puts his wife under the bus. And then the last chapter, we see that Abram is growing in his trust for God, and he's being generous because he's trusting the generous gods, and therefore his heart is now generous. And now, finally, in this week, not finally, but again in this week, we see another test. Now that Abraham has all these things, will they have him? 
Will these possessions possess him? Will he fall back into old ways, as commonly many of us do? Or has he learned true humility and trust in God with all of his things? Is God still his treasure when he's got a bunch of new treasure? Will he trust God or will he trust his new treasure? And with that in mind, what do we do when we get a bunch of things all of a sudden that we worked hard for? Because, I mean, Abram put his butt on the line to get this stuff. So you could easily conclude, well, I worked for this, and therefore I have earned and deserved this. So that's kind of the context we're going into. We're going to go to now verse 17. In his return from the defeat of Ched, as Ross taught us last week, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's valley. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. Okay, this is weird. So get ready with me. Okay, if you took out verse 21 in the following section with Melchizedek, this section will be very smooth. Abram wins, and then the king of Sodom comes out to greet him, and they have an exchange about the stuff and and, and so forth. And it'll be very smooth and very clean. But what happens in this text is that the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abram after this victory, and then the king of Salem comes out of nowhere and kind of takes center stage for a few verses. He kind of disrupts this whole thing. And what we see at minimum is that we're going to see a comparison between both of these kings and how do they respond to Abram? And most importantly, how do they relate with God? And it's going to be a contrast. Remember, Genesis is full of this, where Genesis is going to hold up two types of kinds of people, very different, and it helps us learn about what God wants of us and what he's like. The tricky thing about Melchizedek is he comes out of nowhere. And he's a worshiper of Yahweh, which is very perplexing if you're following the Genesis narrative. Where is this guy coming from? And what we see is that he provides a huge meal for Abram and his troops. It says here that he brought out bread and wine. That word bread, lechem, is just plural. It's just a way, like for Koreans, if you say you want some pop, pop is rice, but it's also just food. So similarly, they would use lechem just as a general terminology of food. So don't think little communion cup that you pulled out of a a styrofoam box or whatever, where you have like a little piece of bread and he just gave him a little communion cup. But we're talking about likely a feast to nourish his troops and Abram himself. But what is so unusual is that right here they call Melchizedek a priest of God most high. This is the first occurrence of this word priest in the Bible. It's not the first occurrence of the concept of priests because the first priests in the Bible were actually Adam and Eve. Why do I say that? And what is a priest? Because maybe you come from different backgrounds where you have priests in your mind and so it comes with some baggage. But simply put, this is oversimplified on the screen, a priest represents God to the people and people to God. Represents God to the people and people to God. And all kinds of religions have different forms of priests. And usually that representation involves different kind of liturgies and different ceremonies. But that's a very simplistic way to say what a priest is. And Adam and Eve and all humanity originally were supposed to be representative of what God is like to the surrounding people. 
but they relinquish that role. And that is taken up in part by this guy named Melchizedek. He is the priest of the most high God. And we're going to talk more about that. But he's also not just a priest. He's also what? A king. He's a priest king. Which according to Mosaic law, you're not allowed to. Remember, King Saul tried to be a priest king. And he lost his kingdom. This is highly unusual to be a priest king. And he's not just a king of any ordinary city. He's the king of Salem or Shalem. What does that sound like to you? Shalem. Shalom. He's the king of peace. Shalom in Hebrew meaning not just peace, but as all things ought to be. That's what we're all heading towards in the future is that God is going to bring shalom to the world where everything is as it ought to be, which results in peace. So don't just think peace when you say shalom. It's far deeper than that. Peace to the very fabric of our being and to the fabric of this universe. That kind of peace. So when a Hebrew would greet a fellow Hebrew and says, Shalom, or Shalom Lecha, or to all of you, Shalom Lechem. I'm saying I want peace for all you at the deepest level in every way possible. And that's what ultimately our God brings. So he is a high priest. He's a priest of God Most High. And he's also king of Shalom, which Salem is ultimately going to turn into what famous city? Jerusalem. Wow. Who is this guy? And then his name, Melchizedek, Melech being the name for king, and then Sedek being righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Who is this guy? So this guy is very special. And we're going to see what Melchizedek does. Verse 19 And he blessed Abraham, or Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. You learn about his theology by his blessing. What does he say? That Abram, everything he has, everything he accomplished, was only because God Most High did such a thing through him. It was by him. And he is not just God of some localized area. Remember, in this near ancient context, East, near eastern ancient context, they would often believe gods would be localized in certain areas. We see that later on in 1 Samuel where they're like, oh, well, they can only win in one area, but if we go over to the, the mountains, they'll lose. You know, God is just only a God of a certain localized field or area. But what we see is that Melchizedek understand that God is God of most high of both heaven and earth. When, he- when you think heaven and earth, think everything in between. So all things, God is creator and ruler and rightful sovereign of all. And Melchizedek understands this. This is highly unusual in a very polytheistic culture that he believes God is most high. Or in Hebrew, El Elyon. This title gives God absolute authority of all things and credit for all things. Look at verse 20. He continues this understanding. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Melchizedek is reminding Abram. Maybe Abram doesn't know this or maybe he does know this and he's just praising God for it. Is that all this that just happened, this miraculous 
Rescue is not because you're clever, Abram, or not because you're strong. You're like 90 at this point or 80. It's because God, most high, delivered all these things into your hand. Now let's look at Abram's response. Verse 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the first occurrence of this word tithe or tenth. In the Bible, it's seen earlier on in conception with Cain and Abel giving their first fruits to God, but this is the first time this word tithe is shown up in the Bible. It's another way of saying 10%. So people will often be like, what's, what's the tithe? Is it this percent? Well, tithe literally means tenth. What, what is a tithe exactly? Tithe is giving 10% or your first fruits of your total income or yield of your harvest as a reminder that all of it already belongs to God and all of it comes from God. So it's problematic when people say, hey, give your tenth, tenth to God. It's, you, you owe it to him or it's his. The reason why that can be problematic is if you misunderstand what that means is that you can kind of think that that 10% is the Lord's and the 90% is yours. I grew up in that culture. My parents gave me a little allowance and I would go give a dollar to the Lord growing up and then the rest was mine for candy and I blew it on candy for many years. My kids are doing similar, and I'm trying to help them like that. <laughs> they're smarter than me, and they're getting, they're getting smarter. I'm like, you, you got to put the money into non-consumables, because if you're doing consumables, it's gone, so we need something that, okay, so we're working on that. But you guys understand, if you grew up in church, you've been around church, that's the mindset that can happen with the tithe, is that 10% is the Lord's, you got to give it to him, and then 90% is mine. But it's all his, and that's the, the point of it. But the way the tithe work is that you don't just lay a bunch of food or stuff in a field and kind of like walk away with a statue and let it rot or let it come down and get burned up. It's actually always given to God through a mediator. Because like people are like, did you give your money to God? And you're like, well, I don't know where he is. Like he said, it have like an address, like a walk up here, God, here's the money you need, right? He doesn't need the money. And so we th- see throughout the whole Bible is that the tithe or God, giving to God is always given through mediators. So the mediator here would be who? Melchizedek. And then later on, as the Mosaic law develops, it's given through the Levites. The Levites survived. They had no land, no no living outside of the tithe. And then controversially, in the New Testament, it's given to churches and to pastors so that they can make a living, so they can give themselves to the word and prayer. And if you want to see more on that, look at 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 14, if you want to study that later. But The Mosaic Law, actually, if you total it up, Craig Blomberg, he does this math that it actually, if if you equal all the tithes, because there are several tithes, it would actually end up about 22.9% of total. Yet, let me just say this. I don't know what you grew up with, but at All People's Church, we do not mandate tithing. Because we try to only mandate what God mandates, and we don't believe that New Testament Christians are still under the Mosaic Law. However, we definitely believe the same principles where tithing comes from are still very much in order. 
See, in the New Testament, it actually doesn't lower the bar. It raises the bar because people are like, oh, I don't have to tithe anymore. But it actually raises the bar. If you look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, is that giving is free will. It's driven by grace, and it's lavish, and it's often absurd where it makes no sense. Much more extreme and radical than merely 10%. But let me highlight how fundamental the heart of the tithe is throughout the Bible and still very much relevant for all of us here today. Hopefully you don't check out because the moment I say tithe, we don't teach tithing and tithing, some people are like, woohoo, all right, on my phone now, right? I'm checked out. All right, check in for a second. Let me show you two principles of why I think tithing or at least the principle of it is still very much relevant for us. Okay, let me highlight two. In our passage, Abram is under the Mosaic law or pre-Mosaic law? Pre, Moses doesn't even exist yet. And yet, he free willingly gives 10% to Melchizedek out of his own heart. What does that show you? That tithing is just a natural response when you actually honor and trust God as the great provider and treasure. And when you get bogged down with questions like, how much do I have to give? Or or, your heart is already being exposed that Jesus is actually not your ultimate treasure. You're not trusting him to be your greatest provider. Remember, what does the passage say? Melchizedek is that Yahweh is God most high. He is the possessor, possessor of heaven and earth, which means that all that you have is his possession. You are his possession. Your stuff is his possession. It's not yours. It's all his. If you're a skeptic here, you don't know Jesus, you have doubts, you're not a Christian, I'm so grateful you're here. And let me just humbly say, that's true of you too. You belong to God, and all your stuff is his too. Let me show you another classic verse that a lot of people use in the Old, from the Old Testament on tithing. Look at Malachi 3.8 from the NIV here. Will you read this with me? Will a mere mortal rob God? Well, people will often bring this up, and then later on in Malachi 3, it talks about getting cursed because you don't give. And some pastors will fearmonger their people. Do you want to get cursed? Right? You're not giving. Right? I'm not going to do that to you. But what I want to highlight, some of you guys just had some serious flashbacks of trauma. You're like, oh, gosh, Sam. Um, but, but what I want to highlight is here. Okay, yes, I don't believe that the Old Testament tithe is still binding on New Testament Christians. But what does he say? How can you rob God? You can rob God. The Israelites are robbing God by not giving their tithes and their offerings. Offerings are what? Are they ob- obligatory or are they free will? Free will. So they're not giving with their... F- with their hearts willingly, and God is calling that robbing. He's calling that robbery. This was huge for me as I was trying to comprehend this this week because for me, I've because of the new covenant, I've been thinking, oh yeah, yeah, you don't have to give, but you ought to give, and it should be overflow. But but I can actually say, I think, because of the authority of this verse, that if you are not giving regularly, you're robbing God. And so if you miss a week or a month or few months or a year from giving, do you think that you lost an opportunity or do you actually feel like you wrongfully robbed God? This changes things. In my mind, it changes them significantly. I, I did not believe this. I did not understand this a week ago. 
That changes things a little. That when you hold back free will offerings to God, you're actually robbing him because it's already his. And you're treating it like it's yours. We, we, are, we are in really tough times, church. I'm very empathetic for all of you because I'm living in the same culture and we, we drink in consumerism and stuff. And a lot of you grew up with parents. Their great dream for you is for you to get stuff. Nice job and stuff and great house. And that's not inherently evil, but it can deeply drown out our hearts. I, I was helped by John Piper in 1995. He said this. So consider inflation, some of the statements he's going to say. There's almost an infallible human rule. Spending expands to fill the income. If you make more, you buy more. And the things you buy have to be stored and repaired and insured. Spending begets spending. If you have less at your disposal, you spend less. And most of the time, you don't even think about it. I spend absolutely no time thinking about world cruises and $30,000 cars. 95, remember? But if I made two or $300,000 a year, pretty soon things like that wouldn't seem any more strange to me than all the stuff I buy now because I could afford it. I'm really helped by the story of John Wesley. I heard this a few decades ago and it deeply just marked my heart. I don't live this perfectly, but, but let me share this. John Wesley, he was in the 18th century, and he was a great evangelist. And in, 19, in 1731, he began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. In the first year of his ministry, his income was 30 pounds, and he found that he could live off of 28. So he gave away two pounds, not much. In the second year of it, his income doubled, but he held his expenses even. So he had 32 pounds to give away and lived on 28. In the third year, his jump, income jumped to 90 pounds and he gave away 62 pounds. In his life, Wesley's income advanced as high as 1,400 pounds in a year, but he still rarely left around the 28 pound expenses mark. I find that remarkable. I find that highly revolutionary and radical because that doesn't make sense, right? When you make more, you spend more. When you make more, you've earned it. And when we have that kind of mindset from the culture, we forget that this is his. Remember the very central principle in Abram's life when God set him apart, commissioned him, and blessed him. You are blessed to be a what? Blessing. God is blessing him so all the peoples of the earth can be blessed through him. And if you're not a Christian and your experience for Christians are stingy, that is very against what God's design is for his people. We're supposed to be the most generous, blessing kind of people that you know. Because we're blessed to be a blessing. That's fundamental to our identity. We're not blessed to hoard. We're not blessed for ourselves. We're blessed to be a blessing. Listen, I, I know that the moment I teach on something like this, questions come up like, well, Sam, what about vacations? Or what about 
good gifts from God. Aren't, aren't those good gifts? Yes, they are. And I'm not saying don't do anything fun. I'm not saying don't buy anything nice. But, but there's a problem where our mind naturally gravitates to that first and not to bless others. We, we try to overly rationalize and give ourselves ways out to be generous first. So don't even go there, oh, how, does, how do I focus on give, you know, all the stuff to, no, no, just focus on, are you fundamentally treating your stuff like it's God's, not yours? And do you really believe God has given you things so that you can abound in good works, according to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? So where do you begin if you want to give what God is due? Maybe you realize here, that at some level, or maybe at a high level, possessions are possessing you. Well, let's start off with tithing. <laughs> Let it be the start, not the end. Let me show you a quote from Randy Alcorn, who I find very helpful when it comes to money, possessions, and eternity, and thinking about all that stuff. <clears throat> tithing is the training wheels of giving. It's the training wheels of giving, which suggests you don't want to live on training wheels. It is, it is not good to see a 40-year-old man on training wheels. It is not right. It is not proper to see him on training wheels long term. Tithing is a great training wheel for you as you grow in stewardship and surrender to all things to him. But over time, depending on the season and your circumstances with your family, context, the overall trend should be increasing generosity, not less. Again, asterisk, extreme situations do happen. Again, this is not law, but this is fundamental to what is rationally you would do if you really believed none of it belonged to you. So if you're not regularly giving your first fruits, this month is a great time to start. At our church, we recommend 8% to the church so that the pastors can give themselves the word and prayer so we can serve you better. And then 2% set aside so you can be generous towards others in the community. That's something we've talked about from the very beginning of our church, and I, I'm so glad to say that it has been so beautiful. Um, Elise, I actually share a story about you a lot when I talk about this. Do you remember when Jonathan Edwards' car broke down, and you had money set aside for him, and he was surprised? And, it, and he was surprised because he knows you're not like balling and just full of money, Right? But because she set it aside and she was looking for an opportunity to be generous, she was able to be disproportionately generous compared to what you would normally assume for her. And all of us can be disproportionately more generous than we are, depending on our station, no matter how much you make, if you're proactive about it. I love that. And I was so convicted by this. I was, I was prayer walking yesterday. And I was thinking, God, how am I applying this passage to my life? Am I, am I just saying this stuff or do I believe it? And the Lord started convicting me of how slack I've been on proactively looking at opportunities to give. I've been very reactive. I've, Joanne and I give every month to different situations and people. But I haven't been looking. Like, God, give me, give me sight to see areas that no one sees yet so I can be generous and bless them. I, I want to grow in that, guys. And, and that just suggests that I've, I've been slowly sliding into the belief that these things are mine. And as you guys know, I have a business on the side that hopefully is growing. And as those income comes in, I'm going to have increasing te temptation to then increase my standard of living. Let me share a passage to you that's just not a passage. Oh, it's not a passage. It's just a quote. A quote from John Wesley that's deeply convicting, challenging. 
When your income increases, your standard of living should increase, but your standard of giving. How great would it be, church, is if we were so possessed by God as our, the owner of all things and our great treasure that whenever money came, extra money we weren't expected, our first thought is, yes, I can finally help blank. Wouldn't that be sweet? I can finally bless this person or help my mother or father or help this situation or give to this missionary fund. If you want to grow in giving, I want to encourage you to consider adding another 2% for missionaries. Raise your hand right now if you are prayerfully considering going overseas right now. There's a handful of you, okay? Look at those people, okay? There's more than that, but look at those people. And why don't you start budgeting ahead so you can give to them? Just like if you're gonna get ready to buy a house or a new car, wouldn't you like set your budget up to prepare for that? Wouldn't we, what if we did that with giving too? You proactively set up your budget so that you could be generous for the nations so that God would get what he deserves. And with all this, I, I, I just need to say this. Church, you're doing so well in this. You guys are being so generous. Do you know why I'm talking about tithing? Because the pastor talks about tithing. A lot of times pastors talk about tithing because the offering's down. So they're like, all right, church, let me whip you in shape. I'm just doing what the text says. It says tithing. We're going to talk about tithing and first fruits. But I didn't need to. You know what that tells me? Is that church increasingly, by God's grace, we are growing for Jesus to be more and more a treasure. Things don't have us as much. And so we've been abounding in generosity. I'm so encouraged by how generous you've been, church. Thank you so much for your generosity. I love the fact that our Helping Hand Fund has barely been touched because you've been just gift, giving and blessing people so much within your MC. That's amazing. And so let's keep it up. But if you struggle with this, you struggle with generosity, you struggle with money, <clears throat> I encourage you to talk to your DNA. Talk to your DNA or talk to your MC and say, hey, I struggle with it. Maybe you need help finding a better job. Maybe you just don't have <clears throat> money enough at all to live. And so that's a strain. We want to come alongside you and walk with you through this. It's, it's hard. And listen, our church has been blessed with a handful of people, actually a lot of people who are really good with money, and they'd be so eager to help you. So eager to help you budget, eager to help you walk. And if you have extreme needs, we'd love to help you out. But whatever it is, this is not something you can be casual about. You can't. Young people here, singles, this is not something you're like, well, one day when I settle down, I'll, I'll get that in order. No, this is something, it's the Lord's you got to be really serious about. Because ultimately, it's the measure of our treasure. This is all about worship. That's why giving matters. Yes, obedience matters. Yes, pastors eating, that matters. But what's most important is that measures our treasure. Where is our treasure? Our giving is a great pointer to that. All right, that was a lot. Now, we're going to switch to Melchizedek. We're going to spend a little bit of time of him. And then we're going to close, okay? So I just want to give you a heads up where we're going. So who's Melchizedek? He disappears after the scene. You don't hear about him again except until Genesis, uh, sorry, Psalm 110. We hear about him and we get a picture that there will be a coming Messiah that will be a priest king, not in the line of Levi, but the line of Melchizedek. And then in Hebrews chapter 5 through 7, which I hope that we can preach through in the future, the author goes into great detail about how Jesus is the great high priest who comes from the line of Melchizedek or the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot of debate about who Melchizedek is. I grew up believing he was Jesus. 
That's what I was taught as a, when I was early in the faith. And then some people believe he's Shem, Noah's son. Some people believe he's an angel. Others believe he's just a man. Um, let me explain why people would think it's Jesus. Did anyone grow up believe, believing this is Jesus? Okay, a few of you. All right, three of you. Wow, okay. Well, the, re- the way that would work is that, that would be, this would be called a Christophany or pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, the Son of God has always existed. Jesus always existed with the Father and the Spirit. And throughout the Old Testament, there's moments where he will come. This is pre-his incarnation, with incarnation is him taking on flesh, being born of the Virgin Mary. Pre-incarnation, he would come like when he wrestles with Jacob later on in Genesis. Or meeting with Moses face to face. Or walking in the garden. These are little times and glimpses where the Son of God, I believe, and many scholars would say, walks into history and interacts with God's people. And there's a few reasons why you would believe Melchizedek is the son of God is because what is, what is his name? He's the king of what? Righteousness. And also the king of peace. It kind of sounds like Jesus, right? He also brings out bread and wine and people are like, woo, 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 Lord's Supper, communion. And then though Abraham is father Abraham and very great, he pays tithes to Melchizedek, making Melchizedek the senior, the greater one. Who pays tithes to someone unless they're the son of God? Like, if you're Abram. And we see later on that Jesus is both the high priest and a king. A king priest. But here's the key. As I was studying this the last few weeks, I started shifting back to Jesus. This, I believe this is Jesus, the son of God, pre-incarnate. But let me, let me just give a quick principle. The New Testament helps you interpret the Old Testament. It's commentary often. It's authoritative commentary. So if you find something is a little tricky in the Old Testament, see if a New Testament author is explaining it or interpreting it because it will bring you definitive clarity what is actually true. And Hebrews 7 is the actual deal breaker. Look at Hebrews 7.3. Would you read this out loud? He is without father... So when you read that first part, you're like, oh, dang, he doesn't have a father or mother. Who's that? Or genealogy. That's one reasonable interpretation. That must be Jesus. Who is that but the Son of God? But you can also say that throughout Genesis, there's always clarity on genealogies, and that was very, very important to the Jewish faith. Who's your father? What's your line? What's the line that you're coming from? Are you a line of Levi or Judah and, and so forth? Fourth, and you don't see that in Genesis, neither do you see his death or his birth. He just kind of shows up and disappears. That's another interpretation you could say to, exa- to, to answer that. But the key right here is this one line, but resembling the Son of God. It doesn't say he is the Son of God, it says he resembles the Son of God, which means the Son of God is first. The Son of God is not be resembling Melchizedek. Melchizedek is resembling the Son of God. That order is utterly important. Melchizedek is a poor man's Son of God, poor man Jesus. He's trying to give us a picture, or what I want to teach you is the word type. He's trying to give you a type of what Jesus is like, ultimately. So this is the word typology. Let me explain to you quickly. Here's a little 
quick explanation. Typology is this. This is throughout the Old Testament. God sending a person or an image that gives an imperfect but true picture of something greater that is to come. And so throughout the Old Testament, we have types like Adam's a type, Noah's a type, a preacher of righteousness who saves people. We see Abel a type, uh, innocent and slain by his brother. We see Abram as a type, leaving the comforts of his father's home to bring blessing to all peoples. These are all imperfect glimpses, glimpses of what the Messiah is like. This is a general idea throughout the Old Testament called typology or types. And this is greatly comforting because it shows us that God is giving us a glimpse of what he's going to do and that he's in control and his plans are good and they will come to pass. And so it's likely that Melchizedek is a type of Jesus, the ultimate king priest, but I can't say definitively. And here's the good news. If I'm wrong, it's okay because if it's Jesus, great. If it's not, he's pointing to Jesus, which is great. And honestly, when I see Jesus face to face, eventually I'll ask this question. It'll probably be really low on the list. I'll be like, hey, was that you? And if Jesus was like, yeah, that was me, I'd be like, dang, I knew it. <laughs> Why'd I change? <laughs> so it's fine. It's fine. It's either him or it's not. And if it's not him, it's pointing to him. Now let's see how the response of King Sodom. Okay, we're going to come back to it and close it kind of abruptly. Verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Notice what the king of Sodom doesn't do. He doesn't thank him. Hey, thanks, Abram, for like sparing your whole, like risking your whole family and, and re rescuing my kingdom. He does something very customary. And customary would be is that Abram, as the victor of the spoils, could keep the spoils, but he, he ought to return the people. No, no gratitude, no glory to Yahweh, the most high, the one who provided. It's very different from Melchizedek. Giving God glory, blessing, giving a, like, a feast, very, very different. Now, let's see what Abram does. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord most, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a threat. So he just goes on this list. Why? Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but that which the young men have eaten. And let's keep going on. What's going on here? Abraham refers to God similarly as Melchizedek and gives him glory. That's so good. He gives God glory for all that he did. And then he made a commitment, probably some time before, that he would not take any of the stuff. What would be wrong with that? Well, what does he say? Lest you say, I have made Abram rich. My best guess is that Abram is continuing to show that he is going to receive God's blessing in God's ways, not, not by his own might, in God's timing. And remember that Genesis 3.13 says the men of Sodom were wicked. It's on the, on the screen right here. The men of Sodom were wicked, wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So here he is. He's talking to the king of Sodom, the king of a very wicked city. The wickedness is flourishing under his reign, and he could probably get a sense that this is the kind of guy that if you receive a gift from him, he's going he's gonna to keep that in mind. He's going to hold it against you. He's going to put you in his debt, even though Sodom, the king of Sodom, is in debt to Abram and to Abram's God. 
And yet in his mind, because he's so humanistic, he's so proud, he's so selfish and greedy, he's going to try to put Abram in his debt, in his heart. And Abram knows that. And Abram does not want to associate with Sodom like his nephew Lot does. So he he wants to separate himself from that. And that's the end of our passage. And I just want to end with some good news. Because here's the good news, church. And I'm going to invite the worship band to get ready to come up. Here's the good news. All of us here have been selfish with our money, haven't we? I have. All of us have treated our stuff like it's ours, not the Lord's. All of us have associated with Sodom at varying degrees and loved the ways of Sodom. We have not been like Abraham who would not be indebted to them. We've all been indebted to Sodom. And the good news is that our generous God, knowing that full well, came down. And he became a high priest for us. He became a high priest that would represent us to God and God to us. But this high priest, if he were to make a sacrifice, it would not be enough. He would have to make the ultimate sacrifice so that it wouldn't be continual like every other priest would. And so what this high priest Jesus does is that he sacrifices himself. He himself becomes the sacrifice. He generously gives himself. His body becomes the blood and the wine, the blood and the bread. He sheds himself. He doesn't offer someone else. He offers himself so that we can have peace with God. So all of us here who love the ways of Sodom in varying ways in our past and even in our present, God made a way so that he could stand in our place and be the sacrificial lamb for you and be the priest for you. And that's the good news of the gospel, is that you don't have to be good enough because Jesus was this perfect, righteous high priest who never did something wrong, and yet he was treated like he did everything wrong, so you and I could be treated like we did everything right. And if you want that to be true for you, if you want that kind of high priest to stand for you as an advocate before the Father and stand against Satan for you, and you're not not sure that's for you, please talk with me. That can be for you. That's available for you today. I'd love to pray with you. And for the rest of us, church, praise the Lord. We have a high priest who's generous and loves us and knows what we're going through, and he stands in our place for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending us your only begotten son to be the sacrifice that we could never pay on our own, except our own death. That's the only thing that could be accepted, and yet, Jesus, you willingly sacrificed yourself as the meal. You became the sacrifice for us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that because you are generous, you are able to make us generous, though we are prone towards selfishness and greed. Thank you that out of your lavish grace towards us, that can overflow into others. So I pray that your grace would flow in us in a greater measure, and then it would flow through us to each other and to the nations. Convict us, Lord, in areas that we're holding on and do a deep work in us, Lord, for your glory and the good of all peoples. In Jesus' name, amen.